Welcome to Point of Grace Church. When I was growing up, uh, I honestly thought that Santa Claus was Jesus. Anyone who thought the same thing? So when I, if you're a kid and you attended Sunday school like I did, and we were taught that Jesus is God and God knows everything and that God answers prayers. And then on Christmas, you sing, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, he's got to find out who's naughty and nice. So I thought really that Santa Claus was Jesus. And then in Sunday school, we were taught that Jesus God, he answers prayers, and that he knows that everything that you're doing, he can see everything that you do. And then we sing, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. So I really thought that Santa Claus was Jesus. I really thought. Beats me. But then, thankfully, and eventually, I, I outgrow that understanding, and I learned more about Jesus. But no, nobody told me, nobody explained to me that, that Santa Claus was not Jesus in a red suit. But the more I grow, the more I learned about Jesus, and the more those confusions went away. But I think that many believers today, many Christians today, still have misreadings and confusions about who Jesus really is. So for the whole month of December, we will be talking about a new sermon series that surrounds the birth of Jesus Christ. And this series is called, Christmas is Not What You Think It Is. Now, we might be wondering, you know, this is Christmas, it's an easy topic, and we know what Christmas is all about. But I'm telling you right now, for the whole month of December, Christmas is not what you think it is. Today, I want to start with Jesus' birth certificate. And then the following Sunday, we'll be talking about his other name, Jesus' another name. And then the third Sunday, we'll be talking about the scandal that his parents went through. And the fourth Sunday, we'll be talking about the manger. It's not what you think it is. And then the fifth Sunday, we'll be talking about his weird guest who came away came all the way from Babylon just to visit him and offer him gifts. So for the whole month of December, we'll be talking about Christmas, but Christmas is not what you think it is. And my prayer this morning is, as we preach this sermon, is that you will find Jesus, you will know Jesus in a whole new different way. And I pray that Jesus will reveal himself to you, even through listening to the sermon. Now, we have four Gospels in the Bible. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Now, I'm not sure if you've read all of this, but these are stories of Jesus or stories about Jesus. When we talk about the Gospels, we're not talking about doctrines or theology. We're talking about stories of Jesus, or more accurately, we're talking about the backstories of Jesus, the inside stories. It's not just the story about, but the inside stories about Jesus. Now, uh, all of them, all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all retelling the story of Jesus in a whole new way, making Jesus the climax of the history of Israel. And so the backdrop of the Gospel is the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew started his book, his Gospel, with the words, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. In your translation, it would say the book of the genealogy of Jesus. It's the same thing. Genesis literally means beginning or to start with. Now, what's interesting here is that Matthew started the story of Jesus with his birth certificate. Now, here's the question. 
why did Matthew use the birth certificate of Jesus to establish the identity of Jesus? What's, what's with the birth certificate of Jesus? What's so, why is this so important? There's a short and simple answer to that. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, where Matthew would claim that Jesus was the Christ. That's the short and simple answer. Jesus was the Christ. And when we say Christ, uh, some people would think that that's, that's the last name of Jesus. What's Jesus' first name is Jesus, and the last name would be Christ. That's not true. Christ is not the last name. Christ is a title. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. It means he's the Savior. So Jesus the Savior. Uh, it's not the last name. So when Matthew wrote chapter 1, verse 16, he was claiming that Jesus was the Christ. And this is not just a mere suggestion of Matthew, because to claim someone to be Messiah is to be engaged in prophecy and revelation. And Matthew was claiming that Jesus is the ultimate, the climax of the history of Israel. He was the sent Messiah. Now, the Jewish people have their own couple of messiahs. The beginning when Alexander the Great conquered the Palestine or Canaan, and then followed by the Romans, there were different kinds of messiahs, different kinds of people who came out and claimed to be the messiah. So when Jesus came, people were not really surprised. There's another messiah presenting himself. Maybe this is a false messiah. Now, let me give, give you the, the backstory to this one. You know, when Jesus was confronted by, and he was arrested, he was brought first to Pilate. And the pilot had to decide who to release. You remember Barabbas or Jesus? You remember that, right? The people were, it was easy for them to choose Barabbas over Jesus. Why? Because Barabbas was not really a petty thief. Barabbas was a revolutionary. A revolutionary is a kind of Messiah who wants and who fights for the freedom of Israel. So if I was one of the people and I am to choose between Jesus or Barabbas, easily I would choose Barabbas. Why? Because Barabbas chooses to fight for the people, to fight for freedom. And Jesus multiplies bread and forgives sin. I don't have any use for bread and sin. I want freedom. This is the reason why the people chose Barabbas over Jesus. A kind of Messiah that fights for the freedom of Israel. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus was not the kind of the Messiah they were waiting for. They want a Messiah who will fight for their freedom. Because in the prophecies, the birth certificate of Jesus or the birth certificate of a Messiah has to be traced back all the way to David. So if a Messiah will come, he must be from the line of David. So anybody can claim that. Our modern birth certificate has your first name and your full name, correct? It also has your parents' first name and full name. It has your date of birth and place of birth. It has your, your uh, doctor's signature. It, it also has the seal to make sure it's authenticated. That's your birth certificate. The birth certificate of the Jews doesn't work like that. The birth certificate of the Jews is all a bunch of the names of the father of the father of the father of the father of whom. That's the birth certificate. It doesn't have last name. It doesn't have your, your mother's name. It doesn't have your place of birth. It doesn't matter to them. <clears throat> Excuse me. What matters to them is the name of your fathers. Because in the ancient understanding of the Jewish people, the progeny is passed on by men, not women. And therefore, when you read genealogies, the father of the father of the father, you don't read women. You don't read 
wives or mothers. You just read the names of fathers. That's how it works with them. And what's interesting is this. Matthew, in writing the genealogy of Jesus, intentionally put five names of women in his birth certificate. Very unconventional. So the question is, why did Matthew put that? Here's the thing. Matthew was trying to establish that Jesus was the Messiah. And for him to be able to establish that identity, he must put the names of these five women in the birth certificate of Jesus Christ. So if you think about it, the first Christmas really has nothing to do with, you know, complete, complete with carols and singing and joyful celebration and lights and so on and so forth. The first Christmas was celebrated in secrecy and scandal. Because the five women that Matthew put in the genealogy of Jesus were all involved in sexual scandal, prostitution, and adultery. Now, like I told you, Christmas is not what you think it is. We all thought that maybe Christmas is just, you know, the happy, joyful celebration. But the first Christmas is not. Let me read to you the first six verses of the birth certificate of Jesus. You ready for this? You follow me along as I read Matthew 1, 1 through 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's the first woman. Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. That's the second woman. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. That's the third woman. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's the fourth one, also known as Bathsheba or Bathsheba. Now, this is very interesting. Like I said, there are five women here. The last one would be at the, at the very end of the chapter. And all these women mentioned here by Matthew, that's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, have been involved in either scandal, prostitution, or adultery. Now, this is a big deal. So I'm, I'm going to have to ask you for the next couple of minutes to give me your undivided attention because what I'm about to tell you is the inside story, the backstories, why Matthew included the names of these five women's, women. So Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, when we modern people read genealogy, uh, and when we read names, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, affect us. It, it don't, we, we don't make sense out of it. When we read them, these are just a bunch of names. We don't recognize anything. But when ancient Jews read the genealogy of Jesus, they recognize stories. Now, this is Inside Story Limited Edition. <laughs> so I'm about to tell you, it's not just story, but the inside stories, you know, the, the very intricate details of stories that you will find in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And these stories, when they read them, it's not just a genealogy, but a, a bunch of stories with a common theme. And the theme is about rebellion. Now, this rebellion was deeply embedded in two things. Number one, it's about the firstborns. And number two, it's about sexual scandal. Are you ready for this? 
this is not something that you would expect on a Sunday morning, right? And, and people would probably thought that, you know, the Bible is full of good things, you know, about the goodness of God, et cetera, et cetera. And seldom we think that even the Bible would include these inside stories about scandals and, and bad things. Let me show you this one. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. It starts with Abraham, the father of Isaac. Okay, there, there will be a bunch of names. And you don't have to memorize these names. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Now, we know that Isaac was not the firstborn, correct? It was Ishmael, the firstborn, right? Isaac had two sons. Jacob was not the firstborn. Esau was the firstborn. So there's something going on here with the firstborns. Jacob had 12 sons. Reuben was the firstborn at Judah. And why is it passed on to Judah among all the brothers? Now, now Judah had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er was the firstborn, and yet the lineage was passed on to Paris. But there's something going on in here. David was the youngest. Solomon was the youngest too. And yet the lineage was passed on to them. There's something going on in here. And if you pay close attention, I think Matthew is slowly building a case about Jesus Christ, why he is the Messiah. Now, this story about firstborn doesn't make sense until we understand the story of Noah. Anyone remember Noah? The flood, all right? The ark, flood, the escape, Noah, wife, three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and three wives. Eight people survived the flood. But it's very interesting here. I'm not going to talk about the flood. I'm going to talk about the inside story of their family. Their family has a scandal. The firstborn was Shem. Second was Ham. Third was Japheth. I'm going to go, not going to go into details. But after the flood, Noah planted a vineyard. He harvested the grapes and he got drunk. And the Bible said he lay uncovered in his tent. Now, if you're thinking that that means he just literally took off his clothes because it's hot, <laughs> that's not what it means. There's something going on in here. And if we try to understand what that phrase, lay uncovered in his tent, means, you got to read Leviticus 18. In Leviticus 18, it will be explained that there's a prohibition about uncovering the nakedness of your father. This phrase means to uncover the nakedness of your father means raping your mother or having a sexual relationship with your mother. So that means when Noah uncovered himself inside his tent, he was having a sexual relationship with his wife. Now, this doesn't make sense until you put into together. Now, Genesis chapter 9, verse 22 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, this is the second board, saw the nakedness of his father. It's a euphemism for they're having, you know, they're doing the deed. And told these two brothers outside. What this verse literally means, or by implication, is that Ham, the second born, uncovered the nakedness of his father, which literally means he raped his mother. Are you still here? Like I told you, it's an inside story. When Noah woke up, when Noah woke up, he realized what happened, and he placed a curse on Canaan. Now, who is Canaan? Why is Canaan? Now, Canaan was the son of Ham. Now, how, how is he involved in any of this? The Bible scholar says that Canaan was the product of that incestuous relationship or sexual act between Ham and his mother. So basically, Canaan was the grandson of Noah. 
the son of Ham with his mother. It's kind of complicated for a family, right? But that's in the Bible. Now, what's interesting here is that why would Ham do that? Why would Ham, the second born, rape his mom? That's the more important question. But I think he's doing is he's trying to usurp the authority of his father. He wants to become the head of the family. Now, there's one more thing that we may probably, we may probably um, miss here is that in Genesis, there was a prophecy after Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent. And God placed a curse on both Adam and Eve and, and the ground. And he said that the seed of the woman will eventually reverse the curse of sin. You get that? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, what I think what Ham is trying to do is he was trying to either make sure that the seed of the woman goes through his line, that's why he tried to rape his mother, or that he was trying to derail the coming of the seed that will reverse the curse of sin. It's very interesting. He was not the firstborn, but he was trying to become one by usurping the authority of his father. Now, now that makes sense when you read Genesis chapter 11. When you ask an average person today who knows anything about the Bible, a thing or two, and then you ask him, what's the origin of sin? And people would probably say the origin of sin is Genesis 3, Adam, Eve, and serpent. You know, they were deceived, so Adam and Eve sinned. But if you ask a Jew, an average Jew in the ancient Near East, he would probably put in the list Genesis chapter 6. What is exactly in Genesis chapter 6? Anyone read Genesis chapter 6? This is a very interesting inside story. The inside story in Genesis chapter 6 is that the fallen angels, we, we know the fallen angels, right? We have demons today, bad spirits, evil spirits. We call them fallen angels. The fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6 came to earth, intermarried with human women, and produced offspring, hybrids. We call them giants or Nephilim. Kind of weird, right? Let me read this to you. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, watch it, the sons of God are not Israelites. There are no Israelites yet at this time. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And as a result, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And the result of that is the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. In Hebrew, it's called Gibor. This is the reason why God told the Israelites to enter the promised land and destroy the giants. This is also the reason why the Israelites backed out because they saw the land full of giants. Who are the giants? These are the progenies of angels who intermarried with human women. Do you see that? That's the inside story of Genesis chapter 6. So what's the similarity between what Ham did and the angels did? See, Ham was trying to usurp the authority of his father. The fallen angels too were trying to usurp the authority of God. How? Because God created man in his image. And these fallen angels were trying to create their own image. And they were trying to corrupt the image that God placed on human beings by creating their own species, their own kind their own image. 
You see, there's another usurpation here. It's another form of rebellion. Now, if you go back to the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and you see Isaac, not Ishmael, you see Jacob, not Esau, you see Judah, not Reuben, you see David and Solomon, not the firstborns, you're thinking there must be something going on in here. There's a struggle about the firstborn and the secondborn. There's something going on in here. You see, this, this is very interesting because, because they were fighting for the firstborn status. The secondborn were fighting to become the firstborn. And it's not about money. It's about the blessings. What kind of blessing are we talking about? We're talking about the blessing that God gave to Adam, then to Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, and it was passed on to the firstborns, supposedly. But it was not. There was a struggle to get this blessing. And what is the blessing about? This blessing is the protection of the lineage and the lineage who will eventually produce the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, the one who will reverse the curse of sin. Are you still here? It's kind of complicated for an inside story, but here you go. Now, if you think about this, the birth certificate of Jesus seems to be telling us that a story of struggle is reflecting the rebellion of the fallen angels and that of Ham. And if Jesus was to be the climax of the storyline, it's the end of the genealogy, Matthew seems to be telling us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Messiah is the one who will reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3, of Genesis chapter 6, of any rebellion. Because this Messiah is not just someone who will give them freedom from slavery, but will be the answer to every problem that they have, that we have today. This is the Messiah. So we go with, with all the stories of women. We have four women here. Five women, rather. And they have their own separate stories. But what I'm going to do is tell you the stories of these five women. And then at the very end, tie this up how this will tie up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So the first story is about Tamar. Anyone know Tamar? Anyone know a woman whose name is Tamar? It's a very interesting name. So Tamar, um, Tamar is the daughter of Judah. Sorry, daughter-in-law of Judah. So let me uh, pause. Uh, backtrack again. Jacob had 12 sons. Reuben was the firstborn. Judah was fourth. He he did not give the firstborn status, the first three, he demoted them and he gave it to Judah. Judah had, had three sons by a Canaanite woman named Shua. So Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er was married to another Canaanite by the name of Tamar. So practically, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. But Er died without having kids. And the custom of the land is the second board must marry the widow in order to produce an heir. So that means he's obligated to give his dead brother, the widow, an heir. Now, it doesn't work for him. We know that. Because if he gives an heir to his brother through his widow, then he will not be the firstborn. He wants to be promoted to the firstborn. It will not help his cause. And so this is what it says in Genesis chapter 38, verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground 
so as not to give offspring to his brother. That was crazy. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Because of that, because he doesn't want to fulfill his obligation, God put him to death. Now at this point, there's only one that's left for Judah. His name is Shelah. And Judah was afraid that if he tries to make Shelah marry the widow, he will also die. So he did not give his last son to Tamar. And to Tamar, it was injustice because she wants to give an heir to, his first, to, his, uh, to her husband or dead husband. So Tamar tricked his father-in-law. She put on a veil. She covered her face. And she had sexual relations with his father-in-law. It's another scandal. Now, this is, this is very juicy. If you're reading this, like, what in the world is happening here? Why this? Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. This is very unconventional for Tamar. But she did this. All right? She did that. She seduced her father-in-law. And she got pregnant. And when Judah found out that she was pregnant, he threatened to stone her to death. And before she was stoned to death, she revealed that the father of her child was Judah. And Judah was like, oh, I get it now. How did it happen? Oh, I get it now. And so Judah, in fact, told Tamar that you are more righteous than I am. Why was Tamar more righteous? Because she wanted an heir for her dead husband, and she got what she wanted. That is to secure an inheritance for her dead husband. Okay, story number two. Like I told you, this is crazy. Story number two is about Rahab. Now, according to the Bible in Joshua, Rahab was a prostitute. That tells everything about her. She's a prostitute. That's her profession. Now, what made her story distinct is that she recognized that the land of, of Israel, the land of Canaan, was an inheritance to the firstborn of God. The Israelites, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, says Israelites are God's firstborn. And the land of promise was their inheritance. So when the spies went to Jericho and met with Rahab, she recognized it is God. This is God's doing. And God is giving the inheritance to the land, to the people of Israel. And so she helped the Israelites by betraying her own country. That makes it difficult to understand. All right, story number three, it's about Ruth. Now, Ruth was a Moabite. That tells everything about Moabite. Anyone who knows what a Moabite means? All right, Ruth was a Moabite. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes? Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities that God burned to the ground because of wickedness? Sodom and Gomorrah. Every time we think of uh, promiscuity, homosexuality, adultery, etc., all these, Sodom and Gomorrah. So two angels came to the city to tell Lot and his family to escape because God will burn the city and punish them. And so Lot and his family escaped in the nick of time, but his wife did not make it. Lot and his two daughters hid in a cave somewhere, but his two daughters thought, we're going to grow old as spinsters. We don't want to grow old. And so they tricked their father, Lot, made him drunk, and had sex with them, they took turns. Another complicated story. Is it in the Bible? Yes, sir, it's in the Bible. <laughs> and the resulting children would be the Ammonites and the Moabites. That makes Ruth a Moabite. So her history alone is questionable. 
And yet, there's something that she did here. Now, she had a husband, uh, an Israelite husband, and suddenly her husband died. But again, the, the whole idea is that the younger brother should marry her, the widow. But there's no more younger brother to marry her. So her mother-in-law, Naomi, brought her to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, they tried to find someone who would be potential husband. And they found out that there's this guy, a distant relative, who could be a potential husband. And what's interesting is what Ruth did. Because Naomi and Ruth were, you know, coaching each other. Naomi was coaching Ruth how to get this guy to make him say yes. And so Ruth put herself in a situation where she sort of seduced this man where he cannot say no. Sort of, you know, proposing marriage at gunpoint in a more sexually seductive way. You got you to gotta read the book of Ruth to understand that. This is very interesting. Now, again, her goal was to find an heir for her dead husband to secure an inheritance. The fourth story is about Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Are you still with me? This is too sleazy. <laughs> you know, when I was trying to study this, this is like, like, this is like um, uh, Inside Story Limited Edition. It's, it's too juicy. But then it's the Inside Story. So Bathsheba or Bathsheba, uh, is the wife of Uriah. Uriah is one of the soldiers of David. So there was a time when there's war, and Uriah was out fighting the, the war. But Sheba was at home. And one day she decides to take a bath. This taking a bath is called mikvah. In the Jewish custom, the, the women would have to cleanse themselves by taking a bath after their monthly period. You'll find that in Leviticus as well. So Bathsheba was taking a bath because it's after the monthly period. And there was David up in his palace looking down on Bathsheba. I mean, this guy, David the king, was not in war. He was looking down, you know, peeping Tom on what's happening there with Bathsheba. To make the long story short, they had coffee together. They ended up in bed. It was a big scandal. And publicly, it went, you know, like, uh, like a fire. People know in instantly what happened. So Bathsheba got pregnant. David panicked. And so he had David. He had David killed the wife of Bathsheba, Uriah. So he committed three sins. Number one, murder. Number two, covetousness. Number three, adultery. A prophet confronted David. David confessed, but the baby died. Now, what the Bible says also that Bathsheba had four other sons, and the youngest of this was Solomon. Solomon would then be king. At the end of David's life, he has so many sons, and they were all vying for the position of kingship. And Bathsheba conspired to make her son succeed as king, Solomon. All these women who were involved in sexual scandal and promiscuity and prostitution and adultery are all with one theme. They're trying to secure an inheritance for their sons. That's the common theme for this one. This leads us to the fifth woman. Woman, It's called Mary. Let me read to you verses 12 to 16. 
It says, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltel. Sheltel, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Abud, Abud, Elakim. Elakim, Azor, Azor, Zadok, Zadok, Akim. Akim, Eliud, Eliud, Elazar, Elazar, Matan, Matan, Jacob. These names don't matter to us. We don't know these names. But then watch this. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. When I was doing this sermon, I was, I was always going, my mind is... Uh, He's playing about, about uh, Joseph, the husband of Letty, but I would always say the husband of Mary. Okay. So Joseph, the husband of Mary, not Letty, of whom Jesus was born, was called Christ. So Jacob, Joseph, Jesus. Now here's one interesting thing. You go back to the Old Testament, and you'd know it's like a repetition of the story. Because Jacob was the, you know, the patriarch who had 12 sons. And one of his sons is called Joseph, correct? who went to Egypt to save the people from famine, right? What's interesting is that when they were released from Egypt, Moses was the savior. He had a sister by the name of Miriam. Mary is the Greek of Miriam. So it's like if a Jew read this genealogy, it was like a repetition of a story of Exodus. Now what's interesting here is that Joseph and Mary was too involved in a scandal. Now, to tell you honestly, Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Because after, before they were even married, Joseph found out that Mary was already pregnant. This is a huge scandal in his time. This is a scandal. And it's publicly known that Jesus was the bastard son of Joseph. That's why I'm telling you, Christmas is not what you think it is. So what is Matthew trying to do here? Matthew is trying to make a case that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he put these names of women, to make sure that we understand that all the women from Tamar to Rahab to Ruth to Bathsheba, even to Mary, were all defending the rights of the heir or the firstborn. And if Jesus is the Messiah, he will become one day the reversal of all the curse, the reversal of all the rebellion that happened way in the Old Testament. See, Christmas was surrounded by scandal. And the Gospel of Matthew is presenting the birth of Jesus in a supernatural way, with a supernatural intervention from God. Although, although Jesus was the son of Joseph, legally, Jesus was the son of the father or son of God. This was the title that Matthew will keep repeating again and again and again up to the very end. Jesus is the son of God. And when you read the gospel that Jesus was rejected as the Messiah, it's because the Jews cannot tolerate the fact that Jesus, who claims to be Messiah, has a very sexual scandal history. Now, that doesn't make sense. Because if Solomon, who was king, who was chosen to become king, who was chosen to build the temple of God, who was well-received by the people, who had also checkered past, why not Jesus? Why not Jesus? Why is Jesus disqualified here? Now, granted that he's disqualified, but his identity does not rest on his parents. His identity rests on the supernatural intervention of God. Because his identity is dependent on God. Why do I say that? Because the gospel says that before, sorry, right after Jesus started his ministry, he went to Jordan for baptism. 
He met with his cousin, John the Baptist. He was baptized. And immediately, all the Gospels would say that heaven opened and there was a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. And who is that voice coming from? Who is that voice? That's the voice of the Father from heaven. So that makes Jesus the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph, but the Son of God. You see, right after that, he was taken by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness. And then after 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted by the devil. And what did the devil say? Every time, three temptations, every time he would tempt him, the devil would say, if you are really the Son of God. Are you still with me? Jesus knows, the devil knows, that he's the Son of God. The devil knows that Jesus knows that he's the Son of God. But why did he still try to trick Jesus? Why? Because after 40 days of isolation and hunger and lack of food and obscurity, I mean, doubts would start to creep in. So he was vying on that possibility that even though Jesus knows that he's the Son of God, he will doubt his identity because he was all alone. He was fending for himself. And so he's thinking, maybe I can trick Jesus into doubting who he really is. He's not the Son of God. Here's the catch. If the devil tried that on Jesus, why in the world would you think that he will not try that on you? Does it make sense? You see, temptations and doubts happen in our lowest. When we are struggling, when we have problems, when we are tired, doubts would creep in. It would try to find a crack in your faith that makes you doubt who you really are in Christ. That is when, you know, Satan is very smart on that. That's when he comes in. He's just watching. He's waiting until you're exhausted, until you feel abandoned, until you feel that you are tired, until you feel all alone. And then he will come and say, are you really the son of God? That's what he did to Jesus. You know, this feeling of abandonment and helplessness can make you doubt the love of God. It can make you doubt that God really cares. And this voice of God in the baptism of Jesus was probably the one voice that keeps going through his head when he was arrested and brought to the high priest. And the high priest asked him, are you the son of God? Are you the son of the living God? You know, Jesus could have denied, but he knows what he has to pay for. Because if he said yes, he will be charged with blasphemy and he will be crucified. And Jesus cannot deny that. So he said, yes, it's what you said. It's probably the same voice that says, this is my son, my beloved son, that keeps repeating in his head was when he was hanging on the cross. And the people started throwing stones at him, taunting him and ridiculing him and saying, if you are really the son of God, save yourself, come down. And Jesus would not say anything because he knows who he is. In the place of abandonment and isolation, even when on the cross he said, Father, Father, why have you abandoned me? He knows who he is. He's the Son of God. The love of the Father is not diminished with your situation. See why? Because your true security lies in the faithfulness of God who never changes. God never changes. I always hear Hannah and and her dad called each other Baba. And Kana would always call her dad Baba. And I asked her yesterday, what does Baba means? Baba means father in Arabic. Baba. It's, it's very endearing to call someone your, your Baba. 
So here's the thing. This Abdallah here. Abdallah is from Jordan for Jordan. And that's, you know, that's his language. If, even if I wanted to call Abdallah Baba, I cannot. Because I don't have the right to call him Baba. He's not my father. The only ones who can call him Baba is Hannah and Jordan. His children. See, what's interesting is that the Bible tells us that when we pray, we address God as Baba. Or in Hebrew, Abba. Let me read to you Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought you about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment. It's how you call God. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, only the firstborns have inheritance. A big portion of inheritance. But what Paul is saying is that even if you're not firstborn, now you are elevated to this position where you will become heirs of God. Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And you can call God your Father. This is who you are in Christ. This is your true identity. See, by virtue of adoption, you have become God's firstborn. Let me level with you. I don't know your past, but I'm sure somewhere along the line, just like the genial of Jesus Christ, we all have our own scandals. We made mistakes in the past. We made stupid things that we're not proud of. We did things in order to survive. We all have skeletons in the closet. And the Bible recognizes that. But sometimes the enemies, the enemy tricks us. It makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel that we are not loved. It makes us feel bad about ourselves, which leads us to doubt the love of God. Listen to me. Your past doesn't matter anymore. Your future and your present is more important. Because the Bible says we are a new creation made in the image of Jesus Christ. You're not yourself anymore. You've been made new. You see, our genealogy will be written differently. It's not going to be a long list of a bunch of names of your fathers and the fathers of your fathers and the fathers. Your new genealogy will just say Norbert, the son of God, or Danny, the son of God, or Andres, the son of God, or Marian, the daughter of God. That's going to be your genealogy because you are made, created in the new image of God. This is the reason why Jesus taught us to pray and call God Abba, Father. Our Father is not a distant, unapproachable, strict Father. Abba is an endearment. And whenever you are in trouble, whenever you feel isolated, whenever you feel abandoned, whenever you think that you're the only one who's solving your problems, there's one to call. Abba. He's a Father. He's a father to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love that never changes. Thank you that your love is not dependent on what we do for you. 
thank you that your love is not dependent on whether we please you or we make mistakes. Thank you that your love never changes. Thank you that your character is always loving and merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Father, thank you for the revelation about Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the affirmation that we are your sons. And sometimes if we have doubts, Father, I pray that you will forgive us. Help us, Father, to overcome the doubts. Help us forge the deeper, closer ties with you. An understanding that you are really our Father. Father, illuminate our minds and our hearts. Teach us through the Holy Spirit. Confirm with our spirit that you are our Father. And I pray, Father, that you will talk to us in the most personal way to each and every one of us here. Make the affirmation true. We pray this in Jesus' name.